Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. Let's start with the Booker Prize long list. What kind of a list is it this time, Claire? Oh, it's very interesting. I mean, actually, it's it's quite refreshing. Because there's been a sense in a lot of these big prizes of, of the search for novelty has taken over, perhaps, from the search for quality at long list stage. And this is a sort of absolute, you say it's a blue chip list. Yeah, it's the kind much. of box office list you'd expect from yeah. Peter Florence, isn't it? Peter Florence, who's the, who's the um, director of the Hay Festival. You say this is a list put together with somebody with an eye to filling marquees. <laughs> <laughs> and the book trade has been absolutely delighted with it because, and it's, a, you know, in a way, at this period in our history when everything's so insecure, we're, fina- we're economically very rocky, to put out an absolutely rock solid book list, it's, it, there's something sort of rather timely about it. Yeah, so names on the tent. So names on the tent. Well, we'd start with the biggest name of all, Margaret Atwood. You know, this is the novel that everybody's been waiting for, which is the follow up to The Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid having become a global meme. What we do know, we don't know yet what it is going to be. We do know it's going to be Offred, still the Offred's further adventures. But the big clue is that they are using the same wimple, the very familiar um, nun's costume, but it's gone green. Ah. I.e. it's going to be environmental. Well, I mean, we could have guessed that because of the Oryx and Crate trilogy, which she's done between the two. And because of the urgency of the climate emergency. I mean, she's responding to her times again, isn't she? Yeah, and it's about time that these climate novels began to come through. Um, the other one is um, John Latchester's The Wall, which is another classic dystopia of a society dealing with a walled island, which is probably... Britain patrolled by soldiers who are taught to, to shoot the others. Mm, the others arriving the, in boats. In uh, boats yeah. after the change. Mm. So, so I think this is this is sort of putting the climate change on the fictional shelves for probably you know in a way for the first time. I, I mean, I'll probably be shot down in flames by anybody <laughs> who has any any. Um, expertise in fantasy and science fiction <laughs> but for the, literary the, fiction it's it's actually only just beginning to happen yeah i mean there are, there are tons of novels you because you, you could cite uh, that have looked at these kind of issues but it's a big novel from a big name in, in in this kind of literary fiction space yeah yeah so in terms of the other big names we've got the new one from deborah levy um the extraordinary thing about deborah levy is having written a flurry of novels sort of 20 years ago she suddenly came back on tap and all her three second pressing novels well the two got onto the shortlist and here we are again another unpublished novel she's very clever because she writes short novels of immense sophistication (laughs) which are also very vivid they're sort of existentialist novels and they're also a bit 
postmodern. Um, and so I was trying to work out what the trick is that she plays. And I think it's partly that she makes people feel clever without exhausting them with a thousand pages. Mm. Uh, this is this one is called The Man Who Saw Everything. So another clever novel, perhaps, uh, do you think is Salman Rushdie? Quixote. Mm. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a, this is another of the three unpublished, hitherto unpublished novels. I think the idea of Salman Rushdie doing battle with um, Cervantes is... Mm. I mean, I'm, I can't wait to read it. I'm going away on holiday with it because I'm interviewing him at the Sheldonian in Oxford as part of our, our Guardian Live programme um, at the end of August. Please, everybody should come. You know, I think that he's at his best when he's, he's not bothering himself with low-down common realism. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm sure this will be him at his fabulous, fabulous best. Yeah, and, uh, but set in modern-day America. Yes, this is a thing that's going on a lot now is, is sort of classics brought into the current mm. day. Uh, the other person who's done that is Jeanette Winterson with Frankenstein, which retells the story of Frankenstein, <laughs> Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. But she reframes it as Rye Shelley, who's a transgender doctor who self-describes as a hybrid, who meets Victor Stein, who's a celebrated professor who sees transhuman possibilities in Rye's body. So it's exploring the possibilities of artificial intelligence and the implications of transsexuality and transhumanism i.e. the monster, but absolutely reframed as a modern set of philosophical issues uh, into the mix of this, this, this modern-day monster. <laughs> and so uh, what about some of the less familiar names on the list? Well, we did Bernadine Everisto last week on the podcast. Her girl, woman, other is mm. an acclaimed favourite of mine, mm. obviously, by now. I am very, very interested in Elif Shafak's 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world, which um, Elif is emerging. She's really interesting. She wrote originally in Turkish and is Turkish, and then she switched to writing in English. They sort of, it took her a while to find her feet as a sort of serious um, literary novelist. And I think that this is probably the one that she's going to have arrived at. It's set on the outskirts of Istanbul and it's about a sex worker who's murdered and her body's been dumped in a rubbish bin. And it's the 10 minutes and 38 seconds in which her brain is shutting mm. down. So it's all the, her going back over her life. Another novel that, that is, again, very different, but is in some sense it's the journey of someone's mind, is Lucy Ellman's Ducks Newburyport. Ah, oh, my goodness, what a mind. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy Ellman was, a, you know, a rock star novelist in, the say, the 90s, and she's gone very quiet. And here she is with a, a single paragraph, thousand word novel, um, which, interestingly, is not published by her regular publisher, Bloomsbury. I think it's probably too hot to handle. So Galley <laughs> Beggar Press, run by our own Sam Jordison, have picked it up. Now, they are very, very smart at picking up unconsidered trifles, aren't they? Uh, it'd be difficult to call this one a trifle, though, weighing <laughs> in at a thousand pages. It's a, what is it, a tiramisu of grand proportions. <laughs> <laughs> a layer cake. <laughs> <laughs> or an eaten mess. No, not so much the eaten. Um, yeah, no, I mean... She, she's 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 a sort of wayward genius, Lucy, and, and you have to go with her for the ride. And it does absolutely sound as if this is worth going with her for the ride. At the other extreme, as a sort of slender novel, is um, Max Porter's Lanny, which I absolutely love. Now, Max Porter was an ex-bookseller who, who suddenly came to notice with um, Grief is a Thing with Feathers, which is like a half poem, half novel about um, bereavement. Um, and then he's written this um, parable of a sort of folk 
England with this figure called Dead Papa Toothwort, who's the spirit of the land. So on one level, it's a, a story of a disappearance of a child, but it's also the invocation of ancient England. Um, and he is definitely onto something because this is about climate and the vengeance of nature and the sort of smallness of humanity against the possible vengeance of nature. And it's told in a kind of multiplicity of voices as well, isn't it? With the, the inhabitants of the village inhabiting the page. Yeah, it's a choral, a choral novel, but it's also typographically very interesting because um, Papa Toothwort's um, speech sort of snakes off the page in all sorts of directions. You've got snippets of speech which add up into... It's, this is what life is. is mm, you know, kind of collective these, consciousness of the village. In some yeah, sense. little little things that happen. I've gotten my bus ticket, or mm. you know, oh, that was a horrible occasion, mm. or I'm hot. Mm. <laughs> even <laughs> another novel that's formally challenging is Valeria Luizelli's Lost Children Archive. Yeah, you're a fan of. We've always done Valeria, haven't we? And I think we, I think we can now formally clap ourselves on the back for having <laughs> been there right yeah. away since she started publishing. Yeah, in, she's in, always been very in interesting. Translation. Yeah, very interesting. And this is her first book she's written in English, actually. Um, it's a, it's a very big, bold book, and it kind of again very intricately constructed as well. About it's about a subject that defines our age, arguably the subject of migration, particularly migration uh, from Mexico to the U.S. Uh, it's also intensely aware of the difficulties of writing about people in these awkward, terrible situations and not making things worse and not sensationalising, not appropriating their stories as well. Which is partly why she's constructed it in this in this kind of complicated way. But it begins with a kind of family road trip, which is a like a family road trip that she took herself um, in 2014. And there are photographs from that trip that are used in the book. Um, but it manages to uh, amazing pivot into a, a more extraordinary story by imagining the accounts of children lost in the desert who are traveling uh, from Mexico to the US. And also by imagining that the family kind of, I don't want to spoil too much, but the family kind of disintegrates for a, for a while in the middle of the book. It's a, it's a, really, it's a really great book. And a, another big book. Yeah, well, not it's quite as big as Lucy Elman's, but no, it's substantial. <laughs> substantial <laughs> and and quite challenging. I've heard it's quite challenging, but you you don't think it is. You, you well, I think I think it's it's a difficult book on a difficult subject, but there's nothing wrong with having some difficult books on the book along list. Mm. Um, then there are two Nigerians, and there's something really interesting going on in Nigerian fiction at the moment, and it may be as simple as a couple of the good agency starting up and cassava which is a publisher which is based half in nigeria and half in england which is it's sort of there's some real stimulation of nigerian fiction going on the, and the most famous of these is um chigozi obioma who sort of leapt out from nowhere in 2015 with the fisherman and was you know shortlisted for the book and was actually in contention was quite widely thought to be the, the underrunner um, mm. for that year um, and th his new novel is um, called An Orchestra of Minorities. Once again, it's dealing with it's sort of calling in into service the mm. classics, which is a big thing. Last time he it was all to do with Yoruba myth. This time it's to do with the Greek myths. Um, and then the it's other yet another book on the list, which is returning to old stories, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's something that seems to be happening all over the place at the moment. And it's also another one going back to Homer. I mean, we've seen so many stories going back to Homer. And, uh, and the other is Yinkin Braithwaite, who we talked about when she was uh, longlisted for the Women's Prize. Yes. And now this is a first novel. So that usually you have a, a handful of first novels. And this is the only one, actually. Yeah, so so we've we've already done a yink, and we've, we're <laughs> we're doing quite well with this list, aren't we? I mean, th th there's a moment when when you when the list comes in, and I, it's a terrifically exciting day, but it's also rather intimidating because you you know suddenly somebody has to sound authoritative and 
you have not even heard of some of the writers. <laughs> but another man who's been on the podcast is, is the final name on the list is, is Kevin Barry. Uh, you know, I think it is quite interesting, this domination by Irish writers that we've had now for ooh, 15 years, probably. Yeah, I think of them as a young generation, but of course they're not anymore. Yeah, and his, his book is, that's Night Boat to Tangier, which is a kind of two-hander between these 50-year-old drug dealers who are looking for the daughter of one of them who's who they haven't seen in three years it's kind of it looks like i mean i've not read it yet but it looks like kind of modern waiting for godo as they they're in this spanish port uh, waiting for the ferry to arrive and it's just it's just as usual it's just he's just a great voice he's just a pleasure to read uh, and he's kissed the blarney hasn't he i mean that, i mean that's a you know you could say that's a very cliche thing to say about irish writing but it's very there's a garrulousness isn't there which is part of the joy he's a bantery sort of writer mm. and, you know, a uh, lovely flow to it yeah yeah I think that, you know, there's something infinitely relatable about just the notion of desire and the things that we are willing to do to have it. Lisa Tadeo. Today, she joins us to discuss her book, Three Women, which explores different notions of desire through intimate accounts of three women. Desire and death are the only things, not to be maudlin and like, but it's the only thing that really we think about or that matter. It's like biological. With these three women in this book, it's, it's non-fiction. It's all it's all real, isn't it, Claire? Yeah, I, I, I describe this as an eye to the keyhole book, but that might suggest that she did it surreptitiously, mm. and she hasn't. She's she's spent a lot of time tracking down and then interviewing in great depth in that wonderful American um, long-form interview tradition. Um, three women. One is uh, Lena, who's an Indiana housewife, whose husband no longer desires her. Um, one is Sloane, a high-achieving woman from Rhode Island, whose husband likes to watch her having sex with other men. And then there's Maggie, who Lisa met just after the trial of Maggie's former school teacher ended, and she had brought charges against him for a sexual relationship she said they had when she was 17, and she's been left reeling from the experience when he's found not guilty. Um, and the charge was soliciting and corrupting a minor, and he returned to his teaching job. Um, so, so these are they're sort of morally complicated, emotionally complicated stories. So, so basically, you could see it as a as a sort of portrait of the sex life of America. Well, these are women who are prepared to share the most intimate details of their lives. It's again, it's the it's the you know the touchstone of this particular tradition is this sort of trust that gets built up. I mean, we see it a lot in documentary filmmaking, but I think we don't see it quite so much now in writing, partly because it's been a little bit discredited. Um, there's something sort of slightly touchy about it. It has to be done incredibly well. And obviously, she has done it incredibly well. Indeed, I mean, it's that she's, she's not afraid to reveal things about herself. She, be, she begins the book as when she came to the studio. She began by reading a passage about her own mother. When my mother was a young woman, a man used to follow her to work every morning and masturbate in step behind her. My mother had only a fifth-grade education and a dowry of medium-grade linen dish towels, but she was beautiful. It's still the first way I think of to describe her. Her hair was the color of the chocolates you get in Tyrolean Alps, and she wore it in the same style, always. Short curls piled high. Her skin was not olive like her family's, but something all its own the light rose of inexpensive gold. Her eyes were sarcastic, flirtatious, brown. She worked as the main cashier at a fruit and vegetable stand in the center of Bologna. This was on the Via San Felice, a long thoroughfare in the fashion district. There were many shoe stores, goldsmiths, perfumeries, tobacconists, and clothing stores for women who did not work. My mother would pass these boutiques on the way to her job, 
she would look in the windows at the fine leather of the boots and the burnished necklaces. But before she came into this commercial zone, she would have a quiet walk from her apartment, down little carless streets and alleys, past the locksmith and the goat butcher, through lonely porticos filled with the high scent of urine and the dark scent of old water pooling in stone. It was through these streets that the man followed her. Where had he first seen her? I imagine it was at the fruit stand, this beautiful woman surrounded by a cornucopia of fresh produce, plump figs, hills of horse chestnuts, sunny peaches, bright white heads of fennel, green cauliflower, tomatoes on the vine and still dusty from the ground, pyramids of deep purple eggplant, small but glorious strawberries, glistening cherries, wine grapes, persimmons, plus a random selection of grains and breads, tralli, friselle, baguettes, some copper pots for sale, bars of cooking chocolate. He was in his sixties, large-nosed and balding, with a white pepper growth across his sunken cheeks. He wore a newsboy cap like all the other old men who walked the streets with their canes on their daily caminata. One day he must have followed her home because on a clear morning in May my mother walked out the heavy door of her apartment from darkness into sudden light. In Italy nearly every apartment house has dark hallways, the lights dimmed and timed to cut costs, the sun blocked by the thick, cool stone walls. And there was this old man she had never seen, waiting for her. He smiled and she smiled back. Then she began her walk to work, carrying an inexpensive handbag and wearing a calf-length skirt. Her legs, even in her old age, were absurdly feminine. I can imagine being inside this man's head and seeing my mother's legs and following them. One inheritance of living under the male gaze for centuries is that heterosexual women often look at other women the way a man would. She could sense his presence behind her for many blocks, past the olive cellar and the purveyor of ports and sherries. But he didn't merely follow. At a Storton corner, when she turned, she caught a movement out of the side of her eye. The stone streets were naked at that hour in the toothache of dawn, and she turned to see he had his penis, long, thin, and erect, out of his pants, and that he was rapidly exercising it up and down, with his eyes on her in such a steady manner that it seemed possible that what was happening below his waist was managed by an entirely different brain. She was frightened then, but years after the fact, the fear of that first morning was bleached into sardonic amusement. For the months that followed, he would appear outside her apartment several mornings a week, and eventually he began to accompany her from the stand back to her home as well. At the height of their relationship, he was coming twice a day behind her. Lisa, today, thank you very much for coming on the Guardian Books podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, part of me, I'm usually resistant when people bring me books or present me books and say, everyone's going to be talking about this book this year because I'm always a bit resistant. I won't be, you know, I won't do what I'm told. I will not (laughs) talk about this book. And then I was given three women and I was told, everyone will be talking about this book. And I read it and I immediately started talking about it. And I just, it is one of the books of the year so far for me. So thank thank you, you, first of all, for writing it. Um, But I'd love to sort of start where you left off really with that reading that your mother this book sort of started with your mother but then it becomes about more than just your mother it becomes about these three women and also really by the end of it all women can you um sort of talk about how the book came to be and it's very long genesis yes well about a decade ago (laughs) i was i was writing articles for new york magazine and esquire 
and Glamour and Elle, and I had written an article for New York Magazine called The Half Hooker Economy, and it was supposed to be about the Tiger Woods and Rachel Yucatel scandal, but I kind of did a deeper dive into the bottle girls who were the purveyors of the you know, large bottles of champagne for the men who were paying $10,000 a table at nightclubs. And my editor, my current editor in the U.S., had read the story and um, took me out to lunch and said, I would like you to write a book, which was probably like both the most, the loveliest and the most haunting thing that I've <laughs> ever heard in a career. So, you know, he was like, you can write whatever you want kind of a thing. And But he had some ideas, and he sent me some creative nonfiction books like Joan Didion and Janet Malcolm and Tracy Kidder. And among the books he sent me was uh, Gay to Lisa's Thy Neighbor's Wife, mm. which is a sort of um, a temperature taking of sexuality in the late 70s and early 80s. And I, I was struck by a couple of things about the book, but the main ones being that it was incredibly immersive. He had spent a decade on it himself. I was really admiring of the immersiveness, but the book was told from such a male gaze that I wondered what it would be like if it were told from a female perspective, because there was a lot of sex in it, and Mm. it was very interesting to read it, but I also found myself wondering what the emotions were behind the acts. Right. And so then... You went on a hunt for three women. (laughs) Yes. Well, I went on a hunt for. I didn't. You know, I didn't know what I was hunting for. Mm. I, I thought I was going to start out with a family, whether it was you know a mother and a father, two moms, or you know just with children, and I was going to follow all of their, their threads, or I was going to find a town and just find you know a community of people and so I didn't know what I was going to do and I had started with a couple of families they didn't really pan out and the main reason and, and the hardest thing that I found throughout the entire researching of the book was that there are very few people out there who will be honest about desire mm. and at first I said I wasn't changing names because Gates Lisa told me I would be a hack if I did so right. but he had also <laughs> written his book pre-internet so um anyway so you know, a lot of people have said, oh, well, you know, I, you could have talked to me. I would have told you. And the thing is, I talked to hundreds of people. Mm. It was not something that people wanted to talk about. So you met families that you, you were talking to people that after a while you got the sense they weren't telling you the whole truth? Yeah, I mean, it, yes. It, it was either that or there was a lack of depth and complexity. And I don't know whether that was because there was a reticence on their part to give it or if there were some people just have there is just the well only goes so deep, I mm-hmm. think. So, you know, th- the main thing is that I, I wanted to find people with both compelling narratives and relatable ones. Mm-hmm. And so I drove across the country six times. I posted up these signs that were, you know, incredibly silly, like in retrospect. And they said, like, do you know, do you have a tale of, of desire? And, you know, some like I was just looking for something I would walk into bars and say when was the last time you had sex and that was not some to like random people and that was not something <laughs> that I felt comfortable doing but I didn't know what else to do and how did that go down on the most part it was you know it was a wide range of responses <laughs> from the profane to the horrified like what is this woman doing mm. uh, you know and that was the thing I didn't know what I was doing people that I spoke to and early on I didn't know I was like I don't know whether you're going to be a chapter or two pages or an entire book I have no idea what the book's about it's about desire but what does that mean Mm -hmm. so it was difficult it was very very hard yeah and so then when it came to selecting these three women you start with a a prologue where you sort of explain the process that went behind Mm -hmm. each of these stories but you do make the point that you did try 
talking to men about desire. I did. You know, the first draft of the book was about 15 people. And there were men in there. Mm -hmm. And there were several other sections that were, they were longish, but they were nowhere near as long as the eventual, the three who, who stayed in. And the reason for that is just because they didn't, the other people didn't give me as much. And a lot of things, a lot of the way that I got people to talk to me was to say, just tell me everything that you want and can. And we'll go over it later. And if you say you don't want this in anymore, I won't put it in. I'm not like, you know, trying to catch you in something. I'm not, it's not like you're a politician and I'm like doing this undercover piece. So, and then what would happen is I would then go back and they would say, no, you can't put that in, please. And then I was like, okay, now all I have you doing is, you know, being a barrister and then coming home and having porridge, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that was the difficult part. So people have said, why did you select them? And I was like, as much as they selected me in the sense that they gave me so much Mm. of themselves. And that is the I guess that is the astounding thing about it, that as you read it, you start imagining yourself, you know, what would I be telling you? And Mm -hmm. I actually don't even think I would be reticent. I don't think I'd be able to put it into words. I don't think I'd be able to identify the the moments in my own life uh, to share with you. Um, And that's when I started realizing, I was actually amazed you found three whole women (laughs) that could tell their stories and had so much in their lives that that can sort of be, sort of extrapolated onto a bigger picture yeah well specifically with lena in specific and she's the suburban housewife in indiana whose husband no longer wants to kiss her on the mouth and then she embarks on this illicit affair with her high school sweetheart with whom she had never lost love for and you know with her she was remarkable because she was came from a very catholic traditional household and community and there was no divorce there was no infidelity none of that was allowed and she had the most wild sense of self-awareness that I've ever seen in a human being friends or otherwise and any of the subjects I looked at a lot of the things she told me made me think about myself in a different way because she was so self-aware and so powerfully in touch with what she wanted and at the same time also felt deserving of that even though she had come from a place when she was told that she didn't deserve anything Mm. and so there's lena so she's the housewife in indiana Mm -hmm. then we've also got maggie can you share how you found out about maggie so i was in this coffee shop in medora north dakota which is a very cowboy part of america like the cliche of america with horses and cows and cattle and i was following up on a lead that a group of immigrant women were working as waitresses during the day at this coffee shop and then being trucked into the local oil fields at night to have sex with the men who worked there and while I was having coffee and like the greasiest eggs I've ever had to <laughs> date I mean they were really good but they were like under like the white was runny and it was really greasy oh, nightmare. Um, yeah it was kind of a nightmare but the, <laughs> I was just like hungry and um and I was reading the local paper and a trial had just ended wherein this young woman when she had been in high school she had had this alleged consensual but sexual relationship with her high school English teacher who had gone on to be named teacher of the year and she had brought charges against him and the trial had just ended and it had upended their community and you know the text messages that they had allegedly sent to each other were not able to be recovered but what was were these hours and hours of phone calls past 11 p.m. past midnight and nobody was really talking about that and it was shocking to me so I I called her mother and I think I drove to Fargo the next day Mm. and so that was how 
I found Maggie. She was reticent, but also because the local media had been abusive and completely just they didn't listen to her. And that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell her story from her in her eyes. Mm. And so you came to Maggie sort of post-trial then? Yes, like right, I think a couple of days after it ended. And so how did then, how did you get her to talk? Because obviously she'd just gone through this massively yes. exposing, she must have been feeling so vulnerable. She was, but we also talked for three years. Right. So, um, <laughs> so at first it was, yes, at first it was very vulnerable and she was, but then like, you know, we, we spoke in person, we spoke on the phone. When I was researching the next woman, Sloan, in Rhode Island, I had also just had my, my child and I was nursing my child while like texting with Maggie at like all hours of the night and it was it was actually great to text with her because you know she was a younger woman and with texting they're just so much and it was also the way that she had predominantly allegedly communicated with the teacher so it was really interesting to be able to see the way that she wrote Mm -hmm. and to you know to kind of then graft that back onto her memory of the text messages and have the two, I think, as intertwined as possible. I mean, she really did remember verbatim what they had said to each other because she was enthralled and had this obsession. And I think when we're obsessed, like we just, just every detail just burned in our minds. Mm. And you mentioned Sloane then. And Sloane's the one that's like the least present in the book, I think. She sort of feels like she's, her story is perhaps slightly less complex in terms of perhaps elements that need to be brought up. But then by the end of it, you do feel like she's possibly the most complex case in the I definitely think that there's a complex, I think that she is the most complex too. And I think that there's more that I did not plumb that I wanted to. Really? That, yeah. And, you know, there was a reticence to her not not even out of fear of being exposed so much out of, but like there is a kind of this, I mean, she had been raised in a family that did not talk about their feelings. So even though she had risen from that, she still, the the boundaries of that were up. Sometimes she would just say things that were shocking and I would say, oh my God. And then other times we would talk for hours and I feel like I wasn't getting anywhere Mm -hmm. so it was difficult but also really I mean I I was so I was intrigued by all of them but Sloan was you know the most like I could I saw myself more in the other two Mm -hmm. than in Sloan uh, and Lena the most and Sloan was my sort of I was just yeah fascinated endlessly and so with Sloan because she's on the face of it when you when we're introduced to her she's this you know from very wealthy background Rhode Island you know effortlessly charismatic woman Mm -hmm. doing the job she loves has a husband that she loves we're kind of thinking that she's the she's the portrait of female desire that's going to be the positive one Mm -hmm. I think when we're when we go into this that she's going to be the example of this is how you you do this right Mm -hmm. but then um this element is introduced that her husband likes to watch her having sex with other men um and likes to take part as well sometimes um and for me, I think Sloane was the one that I uh, I connected with the mm-hmm. most. Um, perhaps, I think, because of that very, I guess, first world luxury of having the time to think about your sex life. Mm-hmm. And she's so uh, proactive in trying to have the best sex that mm-hmm. she possibly can be having. And I think that's something that we're seeing sort of more and more as sort of people have time and resources that they start putting 
that into their sex lives and start getting a little bit more adventurous. Yeah. Um, and what is fascinating about Sloane, I think, is that she, it's not necessarily a positive as it becomes very apparent by the end that perhaps her, this sort of rather exciting um, sex life that she has, this idea about desire that she has, has been shaped by the men in her life. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, but, you know, I think I think it's shaped by the experiences of the past and whether that's men or mothers, which I found to be very, to be a real theme. I would say that she was in control in a way that nobody else that I'd met was quite first of all and I've said this you know before I think that she's got one of the happiest marriages that I've seen Mm -hmm. and granted it's totally different from traditional marriages but her husband tells her every day that she's his fantasy and she's also in control of you know if if she told her husband I don't want to sleep with that man he wouldn't say well you know he wouldn't get angry he would you know she does it for him the same way that he does things for her that he may not want to do and I think that that's you know a lot of marriages hers the things she's doing just happens to be sexual Mm -hmm. and I think people have a real aversion to people doing sexual things for other people but it's not coerced you know it's just confusing Mm -hmm. because it's confusing a lot of things in relationships are confusing I think she was confused so I was attracted to her happy marriage her standing in the world the way that she felt powerful and also submissive Mm. which I think is really interesting and then, you know, there's this confusion and the confusion sort of washes away when they meet this, well, they knew him already, but when they bring this this third person in who uh, makes her feel like everything that she feels is okay. Mm-hmm. And also Fifty Shades of Grey, which also like legitimizes her lifestyle. Yeah. And it's interesting actually with uh, Sloane, it's, it's with Shades, with mm-hmm. Maggie, it's Twilight. Yeah. Um, and with Lena, it's the Princess Bride. Yeah, that there is so, this yeah. presence of literature yeah, in all totally. of their lives. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned submission before, and that's the thing I'm fascinated by because mm-hmm. I've never been able to really wrap my mind around mm-hmm. it about how I feel about it and how, mm-hmm. just about whether there is a way to engage in submission or to be submissive yeah. in a way that doesn't inevitably degrade a woman. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't I, I think it's a matter. I think what we're what we're doing a lot is like the, the cancel culture that we're living in now is that you're almost not allowed to be submissive. You know, I feel like a decade ago or so I used to hear all my friends saying I just want to be thrown across a bed, you know, by or it doesn't have to be a man. It just has to be someone with like a bigger sort of sense of power than you. And now it's like the idea of saying that. It's like you're saying you want to be raped Mm -hmm. against your will. So, you know, and I don't think that wanting to be thrown across a bed or whatever is necessarily submission, but it's definitely there's an act. There's a sort of you want to be the person who's in a position of quiet and being the one waiting for something. But I also think that that changes with different partners and different people. And it changes depending on where you are in your life and how your desire is moving. So, but I think submissiveness in this culture right now is really hard 
to admit to because we will get reviled for it and shamed and like what kind of a woman are you if you want someone to do this to you mm. the idea that we would you would always want power there would be never be yes. a circumstance that you would exactly. willingly give it up whereas men you know men are often wanting to be submissive and that's okay you know like nobody says that you are weak because you want that it's a it's an element of desire that I think if whatever you want if someone's willing to do it with you judging it out in the open seems very strange to me Mm, yeah I mean there's an idea I think that emerges throughout all of the stories about power um, and you make a really interesting distinction between power and agency and it's particularly in regards to Maggie when she has this relationship with the English teacher and you make the point that women and girls do have power in part because men desire them but also girls do not have agency and Mm -hmm. that is the distinction to be made in Mm -hmm. cases like Maggie where people start going well she wanted it too and that is undeniable she definitely wanted it but whether she knew what to do with it is is the really uncomfortable question you know she wanted it but what she wanted is very unclear she wanted to be paid attention to by a man or authority figure that she was that she was respected. She wanted to be seen. I've always heard friends talk about, and I certainly can relate, the idea of being the older sister who's in the window getting undressed while, like, you know, the boyfriend of your younger sister, something like that, is walking by and watching the classic 80s movie. Mm. And, you know, I think that that would have been maybe enough, but it wouldn't be enough for a men heterosexual men from what I've seen always take it to the next level you know at least the women I spoke to I think there would have been a sort of point at which they don't want to go over and it would last more in their brains Mm -hmm. like one of my friends is always like never wants to go on a date like she just wants to talk to the guy for months because she's like the second we go on a date it's gonna suck you know (laughs) um so yeah I think women like the protracted chase and men are like just you know three days i'll be fine (laughs) um yeah it's that idea of anticipation i suppose she desired desire and then when it happened it was when it got messy yes yeah and we'll be back with more from lisa Tadeo after the break when she and sean discuss what shapes our experience of desire finding your perfect home was hard but thanks to burrow furnishing it has never been easier Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast, where Sean is speaking with Lisa Tadeo about her book, Three Women. We pick up the interview with Lisa explaining how the stories of three women can tell us about the ways desire is shaped by the world around them. It's interesting that when I finished the book, I felt a little bit abandoned in a funny way, in that I kind of felt like I hadn't got the answers that I wanted. And then I realised later, I was like, I, I'm really glad you didn't answer anything for me because I would have been really suspicious of anyone telling me I have all the answers to female desire and how that is shaped by outside forces. And 
I was actually really glad that you hadn't stepped into that role. But it does sort of feel, I guess, if there is any conclusion in this book, that there is this question about whether heterosexual women have actually achieved true sexual equality right. and whether you can ever have female desire that is entirely unshaped by the male gaze. I think that, you know, there's something infinitely relatable about just the notion of desire and the things that we are willing to do to have it. So I don't think that they're, you know, shaped by the men. I think that we're shaped by our pasts and Lena was shaped by being raped by three men when she was a young woman. Sloane was shaped by, you know, a variety of things, a lot of which had to do with the way her mother was and the sort of, you know, unspoken emotions in their house. So I think we're all shaped by the things that happened in our past. But I don't think it, my book wasn't trying to say that women are not empowered. I wanted to tell the story of people. I didn't know it was going to be three people. I didn't know it was going to be three women. I didn't know it was going to be three heterosexual women. I would have preferred having, you know, the, the original draft I sent was 15 people. But ultimately, these people gave me the most. And what I wanted to do was tell stories and three stories of people who spoke very powerfully for themselves, not for all people. And so, you know, I wasn't trying, like you said, to make a conclusion, to draw one. I didn't. I don't really have one other than the fact that desire and death are the only things, not to be maudlin and like, but it's the only thing that really we think about or that matter. It's like biological. And I wanted to just explore that. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm sorry, it was a long-winded answer to the fact that I, I didn't draw a conclusion. I think that it's I think that all people can relate. I would hope they all can relate to one, two, or three of the women as I did. That was Lisa Tadeo. Desire and death are the only things, eh, Claire? Well, T.S. Eliot would say there are three things, birth, copulation, and death. <laughs> but basically nobody remembers their birth, and so they're singing the same tune. <laughs> three Women is available now from Bloomsbury in the UK and Simon & Schuster's Avid Reader Press in the US. The Booker Shortlist is announced on September the 3rd, with a winner due on October the 14th. Next week, we'll be speaking with Rachel Deloach-Williams about the fake heiress, Anna Sorokin, who scammed wealthy New Yorkers out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. As always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Richard Lee, me, Claire Armistead, Sean Cake, and our producer, Brenna Daldorf, thanks for listening and goodbye.